Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis. And this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode, my interview with the first Sea Lord, Admiral Tony Radekin. So if you haven't listened to that, do please make sure that you find it and listen. Today, we have an episode designed to follow up on that previous interview. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jane Harold, lecturer in strategic studies as part of the Dartmouth Centre for Sea Power and Strategy at the University of Plymouth. And we discuss the question, is Britain still a global power? What do we mean by global Britain now and what did it mean in the past? It was fascinating and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Here's Jane. Jane, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Uh, Sam, it's a pleasure. So, um, let's start. What makes a global power? That is a very good question. Uh, it's, a, it's a phrase that's uh, obviously being banded about uh, quite a lot at the moment uh, in Britain. All this talk of, of Britain as a, a global power, a global Britain. Uh, every country, to a certain extent, is global, obviously, because we're all part of a world community. Uh, Globalisation means we're hugely interconnected, uh, whether it's uh, transportation under normal circumstances, whether it's the economy, whether it's society, uh, social media, whether it's uh, our health uh, during a pandemic. Uh, And so no country can be entirely isolated uh, from the rest of the world. Uh, I think when we talk about Britain as a global power, global Britain, whatever that is supposed to mean, uh, there's an assumption there of of global power uh, and it's the power part uh, which is significant if equally uh, intangible uh, and and difficult uh, to to judge. Um, All sorts of power of course, you think traditionally when you talk about the great powers You think about the greatest military powers with the biggest armies, the biggest navies, the most destructive weapons, be they nuclear, be they conventional or or whatever they happen to be at the time. Usually that goes uh, together with being a great economic power, uh, 
but clearly it's possible to be a great economic power without being a great military power. Uh, and indeed, the two can sometimes be mutually incompatible. After all, it's a huge drain on resources to maintain significant militaries. Hence, the, the, the power of, of Germany and Japan, the economic power of these countries after 1945, but without, uh, obviously, a, a significant uh, amount of, of military power. Uh, those are the more traditional indices, but of course, together with that, there's a lot of talk these days of, of soft power, uh, which is even more difficult uh, to judge. Uh, and the UK generally does quite well in the, uh, the soft power rankings. So we're not talking about um, your traditional tools of diplomacy here. We're talking about um, you know, how much uh, British media is uh, um, accepted across the world, the sort of... Um, <laughs> hype to which the uh, the BBC is, is well regarded but beyond that uh, our sport uh, our film our television uh, all of that reaches a global market a mass market you know people playing uh, in British football teams and the Premier League are, are probably better known than native footballers in, in an awful lot of countries uh, people watch Downton Abbey and, and the Crown which uh, obviously reflects a certain image of Britain, which may or may not be particularly contemporary, uh, but which nevertheless means that everybody's heard, or most people have heard, uh, of Britain. Uh, so in terms of being global, uh, in terms of being recognised internationally as a presence, let's say, clearly the, the UK is up there, it's out there. So having said all that, do you think there is a way that we can define global Britain? Well, I tried to define the government's definition of global Britain uh, on the basis that there's an entire integrated review entitled Global Britain, uh, and I couldn't find one. Uh, I think that's as, as untangible or intangible as, as anything else I've, I've talked about. But I think it's, it's possible to, to work out what is intended uh, by that phrase. Uh, it's certainly intended, I think, to, to be very inspirational, uh, very positive. Uh, it sees sort of Britain unleashed uh, from perhaps a less global, less proactive role in the past. I'm not entirely convinced that that, that condition actually existed. As I said, Britain is a global power anyway. Uh, but I think it's uh, it's suggesting uh, a UK which uh, is able to perhaps punch above its weight, uh, which has uh, an impressive military capability. Uh, obviously, our first, our biggest ever uh, ships in the form of the uh, Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales uh, are, are now operational. Uh, they seem to embody this idea of Britain going out there beyond uh, our, our region beyond what has been perhaps uh, holding us back for the last uh, 70 odd years, our commitment to, to Europe and European security uh, are now striking out for where we see the, the new world order emerging economically, politically, military towards the, towards the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's probably what global Britain is, is aiming uh, to be. Uh, quite how that is uh, going to to play out, what the the logic and, and rationale for for that is, uh, I think is is less clear. Uh, but as an inspiration, uh, it's inspirational, I suppose, uh, and very difficult to quantify. But uh, but at the same time, as I say, it's it's clear what the I think the underlying intention is. Yeah, it's very different to 
the way that Britain exercised global power in the past. I think that's a, a key point to make. I mean, the British Empire was the most extensive empire in human history. Uh, what happened? How did that change? Why did that change? Uh, I think there, there is a degree of... Not, it's interesting that you, you mention uh, the sort of imperial period, because I think there is an awful lot of nostalgia in England, not necessarily the rest of the UK, but in England, uh, for a past where Britannia really did rule the waves, uh, and consequently we were able to uh, pretty much exert our influence uh, as and when we wanted to and expand our, our markets in terms of uh, both selling our manufactured goods and, of course, uh, acquiring raw materials. Uh, I, I assume that there isn't a perception that we can return to that because clearly uh, we can't. Uh, but I think part of this is a it's a longer historic historical uh, process, really. The, the idea that suddenly we've left the EU and now we have to find an alternative, uh, I think is very short sighted. I think we have to go back to the end of that imperial role uh, in the middle of the last century which actually happened incredibly rapidly at the end of the Second World War. It didn't happen in the way that traditionally empires have tended to collapse. In other words, it came at the end of a great military victory rather than a devastating military defeat with the end of the Second World War. The, the subsequent loss of our empire was done more or less consensus, consensus, by consensus. Uh, that's not to suggest it was a, an easy and certainly not a bloodless process. Uh, I mean, clearly the partition of India uh, itself is a, is a really good or bad example of how uh, disastrous some of our uh, decolonisation actually was. But it wasn't necessarily seen entirely as a sign of weakness or a sign of decline. It was a, an acceptance of, on the one hand, a changing uh, sort of ethos where empire would no longer be considered an acceptable way of dealing with international relations an ethos very much backed by the main superpowers at the time, both the Soviets and the Americans, uh, hugely uh, anti-imperialist, although you could argue somewhat uh, hypocritically, given their own foreign policy stances, uh, and also a growing recognition simply that it was no longer acceptable for, uh, for foreign rulers to impose their will on, on other countries and the right of these countries for their independence and to have their, their own uh, control over their, their lives and their livelihoods. So I think in those circumstances, the fact that the British Empire retreated quite so quickly, uh, we never really, the, the British as a whole never really got to have a proper debate over what that meant for our role in the world. It just, it happened really quite suddenly, but in a, as I say, in a non-conventional way. Uh, the, the, the real mark, turning point often credited, of course, is, is the Suez crisis. That was the, the wake up call when we finally realized that we weren't the great imperial power that we once were. We couldn't act independently without the, uh, the backing of the Americans. So we had to look elsewhere uh, and that elsewhere turned up turned out uh, to, to be Europe, uh, a process that had already happened in security and defence, of course. Our commitment to NATO and to the defence uh, of our NATO allies in Western Europe uh, from 1949 onwards significantly predates our commitment uh, to the European Union, uh, as it would become. Uh, and interestingly, of course, it's never been nearly as contentious either. Uh, and that, in theory at least, remains unchanged by leaving the EU. Uh, but nevertheless, that, that historical process that, 
really started to shift in the late 50s and into the 60s, saw our abandonment of our East Suez role to focus on NATO, which clearly, given the Cold War, was our, our major strategic threat, uh, and then economically uh, to turn our attention uh, to, to Europe, to the common market, uh, as we insisted on calling it right up until really uh, the mid-1980s. Uh, and it's as if that was sort of a 50-year experiment. That was the alternative model first attempted. Uh, and after that 50 years, for a combination of reasons, decided, no, actually, that's not for us. We're not comfortable here. So we need to, to rethink and, and restart uh, where, where we're going. Uh, and actually, I think if you look at it like that, you can almost argue that rather than Brexit being the great turning point here, uh, the cause of, of all this change, in many respects, it was perhaps a symptom of a trend that was already ongoing, uh, that the UK famously had never been a, a fully paid up, committed member of the EU, obviously paid up financially, but paid up in terms of, yeah, we like the idea of the single market, at least for the majority of our membership, but we never bought into the bigger federalist ambitions uh, of European integration. So there's an, almost an inevitability to a certain extent that we might uh, ultimately uh, leave. What I think that the problem with that argument is I don't think that many people were thinking in those terms when they decided that they would prefer to leave. Uh, so it's, there's a, there is a, a disjoint there uh, to a certain extent. And also, Unfortunate, I think, that in that more immediate debate around the referendum, foreign and security policy didn't really figure in the debate, even though... Clearly, yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it's, the whole thing about the EU, in a way, was that it kind of transcended domestic and international affairs. And the focus was very much on the domestic impact of membership of the EU, with almost no consideration whatsoever. And even after the referendum... Obviously, the economic relationship with the EU was going to be dominant because that was going to have the most immediate effect. But at the same time, there was still very little consideration, let alone wider debate about what this meant for Britain and the world, even what our relationship with the EU should be after we leave it. Uh, it's one of the I mean, I think it's probably quite clear what my position on all this uh, is, uh, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> you know, it, it was—it it seems to be that, that there's an assumption that having left the EU, that the EU has become, in quotes, the enemy. So rather than a partner with whom we could uh, enjoy not just mutually beneficial trading relationships, but with whom we share significant security interests, global interests, regional interests, with whom we still share uh, a huge amount in common, not just in terms of interests, but you know, culturally, uh, etc. Uh, who we could still, and this is another of, of, of my concerns about global Britain, uh, and the foundations upon it, which it is or isn't built. If you actually look at what has made Britain a global power since 1945, it's a combination not just of economic and military strength, which compared to the Soviets and the Americans, now the Russians, the Chinese, is, is really quite small. It's not tiny, but it's, it's far less significant. One of the things which has allowed us to punch above our weight has been our relationships 
from Winston Churchill talking about his three circles in the late 1940s, the fact that even he recognised at that period in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War that what allowed Britain to punch above its weight was the fact that we had this evolving, emerging special relationship with the United States while at the same time preserving a relationship with our, our what the empire turning into the Commonwealth countries, plus, of course, Europe. Uh, and you know, we can debate whether or not he, when he talked about a United States of Europe, he meant for the UK to be a part of that or not. What he was clearly saying was that a United States of Europe or a more united, integrated Europe, which was less likely to go to war with itself again, was a good thing. And not only that was a good <laughs> thing for the UK. So even if he'd want, he would have been a soft Brexiteer at, at best, I think. Now, he might have wanted to take the UK out of... Uh, the more federalist aspects of, of the EU, but he wouldn't have wanted to treat it as an enemy because he would have seen that as really playing into Russia's hands, if nothing else. Now, what better for Vladimir Putin than a divided Europe into which he can extend his influence, uh, let alone how the Chinese could, could, could play on that. So I think that, to me, if Britain wants to be global, I think the key is to retain that sort of pivotal power status that, you know, for our his, one of our historical legacies, which is perhaps more useful than most, is the fact that we've evolved this tremendous diplomatic network across the globe, that British diplomats and diplomacy is largely, hugely respected. It may not be liked everywhere, it may not be entirely trusted sometimes, but it is respected. Uh, and as a, a respected international actor, the UK is able uh, to be a, maybe a sort of a convening power to bring disparate groups together in the context uh, of uh, the transatlantic relationship, for example. You know, clearly, there's the special relationship with the US has been and continues to be extremely important. Uh, and historically, one of the reasons for that importance was that we provided the Americans with their bridge across the Atlantic and, and into Europe. And clearly that has been to some extent deconstructed, but it hasn't been necessarily demolished. The UK still knows how other European countries and, and the EU operates in a way perhaps the Americans don't. The UK still potentially has a role to play, but it can't play that role if the way it's coming across in terms of its relationship with the EU as a whole and key member states is, is so antagonistic uh, towards mm. what these countries on the whole, for whatever reason, still believes is in their best interests. Uh, and I think that that is. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The risk. How do you think the, the armed forces, you know, particularly the Royal Navy, fit into this? I mean, is there any, any, any business of us having a Navy at all, in, you know, in the modern day? Well, I think actually, then, whatever the, the sort of outcome of all this uh, uh, sort of talk of global Britain is, that of all the armed forces, is that the, the Navy is in the strongest position. So that, that's a good thing in a, in a way. Uh, I mean, in a way, this global Britain is a return, as the Integrated Review actually talks about the UK as a, uh, as a maritime power with, with global interests. Uh, and so whatever the UK's political or military involvement in global affairs in the future will be, it's always going to need the, the economic uh, global sea, lane, sea lanes of communication, which, of course, the Navy is, is critical uh, to defending and maintaining. So I think uh, from, from that perspective, the Navy uh, has uh, an important role. Uh, it's debatable to what extent the aircraft carriers uh, support that role. But of course, they play uh, another role. Uh, they almost become the embodiment of, of, of corporate Britain. They're out there flying the flag. That's one of the first things that Queen Elizabeth did was go to America and sort of uh, try and sell corporate UK. Now, sailing around the Pacific at the moment, that's as much uh, a show of, of economic intent as it is of, of military intent. So I think if Britain wants to project itself uh, as being global, what, whatever that may or may not mean, uh, the Navy provides an, an obvious platform to do that, which none of the other services can do without physically invading other countries' territory, which is definitely not, I think, what is on the, uh, on the agenda. So, you know, the, the classic maritime role of, uh, of flying the flag, promoting a, an image, which, if necessary, could obviously be, be turned on a penny and, and suddenly become uh, more belligerent if, if necessary. Uh, I think the Navy's role becomes much more important, arguably, uh, under global Britain uh, than perhaps it did uh, beforehand. Even though, of course, the, the conception of the carriers significantly predates this new version, uh, this post-Brexit version of, of global Britain. Um, the, the, the SDSR of, of 2015 talked about global Britain uh, and that was written before uh, we knew what was going to happen after, after the referendum. But certainly I think from, a, from the RN's point of view of all three services, even though in terms of total number of ships uh, it's, it's going to decline, uh, in terms of the capabilities uh, it will remain uh, highly effective problem there with it's all very well having a uh, super duper kit but you can only be in, in one place at a time with uh, with any such uh, platform uh, but nevertheless in and certainly from a theoretical point of view it looks good for the rn yeah i, I was um, talking to you that's the military aspect of it i was talking to a chap who's an expert ron nash um there's a podcast for you listening about the shipbuilders of leith um, and um, he was talking about how Britain was such a strong power in terms of manu manufacture of shipping. And so much of the world's shipping in the 19th century came from Britain, particularly it came from Scotland as well. I mean, it's, it's difficult maintaining, well, it's impossible to maintain that position if the ships, you know, the huge container ships now which dominate world shipping are actually being made in Singapore or wherever it might be. Absolutely. I mean, that's another good argument for uh, increasing our, our hard capacity is that that provides 
um, manufacturing uh, and business for, for our own um, national uh, companies and the fact that that might benefit a shipbuilders in Scotland clearly has other political benefits uh, as well as as far as the UK government is, is concerned uh, but but clearly the, the the world has shifted and changed so much since the middle of the 19th century and of course that's part of the rationale behind this pivot towards the Indo-Pacific is because that's where the majority of ships are being built because that's where the economies are growing and uh, those of us in the West um, are diminishing, relatively speaking, uh, in comparison. Yeah, I mean, I've been lucky to be to, to go out there and, and travel around there. And if you go to I, where it might be um, Guangzhou or and then Singapore and then even in well Greece, I reckon is you know it's the biggest port there, which has been um, kind of t- taken over by the Chinese. They've built an enormous container port there for all of the all of the shipping that's coming through Suez. You realise how uh, you know the the influence of shipping is is very much towards the east. It's not here <laughs> at all. Hey, you know, however much people talk about shipping coming through the channel and it being so important, it's nothing compared to what's going on elsewhere. Absolutely. Which you know, would seem to suggest that, again, you know, pivoting to the uh, the Indo- uh, Indo-Pacific uh, makes sense. My, my concern is that physically we can't m- pick Britain up and move it. Uh, and that, you know, it's all very well wanting to join uh, Pacific Ring, Rim trading uh, blocks uh, and sending our our flagship effectively uh, to the Pacific but Britain is still you know off the coast of Europe it's still in the North Atlantic the biggest traditional threat to our security remains Russia Uh, the most effective way of protecting us from Russia remains our our alliance with with NATO and my concern is that can we maintain our commitment as the largest European contributor to NATO while at the same time undertaking all these moves to the other side of the world uh, and I, I, it just does concern me that we can't literally cannot afford either financially or in terms of our our national interest to do both at the same time I don't know how we can we can manage that I mean may, maybe I'm just being overly pessimistic and I'm, I'm obviously biased when it comes to all things European and, and NATO but the reality is we can't we we're the UK is not itself an aircraft carrier. There may have been analogies about its aircraft carrier sort of position in the past, but it isn't actually an aircraft carrier. We can't actually uh, just pull up the anchor and, and sail by whatever means uh, to the other side of the world. We are here. Uh, and we realised that in the latter part of the 20th century. And uh, now it's almost as if we've not learnt any of those lessons. We've not learnt the lesson of why we abandoned Easter Suez. We've not learnt the lesson of why NATO for decades was the foundations of our national security. And that maybe makes me sound terribly backward looking and stuck in the middle of the Cold War somewhere. But and I'm not I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, we ignore uh, the rise of China and and insecurity uh, in the Pacific. Uh, But there are, as I say, other lessons to learn, which is that I mean, if you just look at the, the carrier strike force that's out there now, you know, you've got um, aircraft, our, our, our brand new spanking new aircraft carriers out there, but over half of the aircraft on that carrier are American. 
uh, some of the support ships are Dutch. In other words, Britain is able to to do all this stuff when we're working with our allies. So it, it goes back to the relationships, uh, maintaining those allies and alliances, which require good faith as well as good relations is extremely important. Uh, and we need to recognize that that is not, that's not a weakness. Being able to get on with people uh, and develop relationships is a strength. And I think it's been a strength of UK diplomacy uh, historically, certainly since the end of the Second World War and the end of the Cold War. Uh, and if we, there, there is a danger that in our obsession with being independent from the EU uh, makes us so at odds with the rest of our allies, uh, whether they're other EU members or other European countries, I should say, or whether they're United States. And I think, you know, perhaps one of the miscalculations in this whole approach was the assumption that President Trump would get a second term. And in the context of a, a second Trump term, which in itself had complications because there was this dichotomy on the one hand, you think, yeah, Trump America and Brexit Britain kind of seem like they've the two peas from the same pod. But actually, the evidence, the reality was that they clearly weren't when it came to our foreign policy, we actually found ourselves um, tending towards the other European capitals, the Iran de um, nuclear deal being a, a good example of that. Uh, but clearly the, 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 uh, the sort of uh, propaganda from the Trump administration as far as international institutions was concerned was that they were a bad thing, that uh, you know, he, he didn't like NATO very much, he certainly didn't like the EU. Uh, and so that you know, our anti-antagonistic stance towards the EU was was okay uh, under those circumstances. But clearly Joe Biden is, in a, to a certain extent, a blast from the past in more ways than one. Uh, his attitude towards international institutions is very much of the late 20th century, uh, which is a good thing in, in terms of keeping NATO together, uh, which is in our interest. Uh, but as far as his attitudes towards the EU, you know, completely the other side of the coin to, to Trump. Uh, and if we do find ourselves, and we've come close to that with the Northern Ireland Protocol, whatever the rights and wrongs of that are, uh, clearly, if it came to the crunch in the, under Trump, we might have expected the Americans to support us against uh, the EU, but that's not going to happen now. Uh, so we, we're in danger of finding ourselves isolated, even from our closest allies, even from the United States, uh, at least politically. That may not be a long-term issue. There's obviously plenty of other things that keep us together, not least our, our cooperation when it comes to defence. Uh, but you know, in, in the longer term, that could be undermined if our interests uh, diverge. So I think you know, there is a contradiction, if you look in the integrated review, uh, between talking of, of needing to shake up the international order and at the same time defend the, the rules-based international order, there is talk in there about Britain still wanting to be a, a get up and go country that wants to promote uh, democracy and, and human rights, etc. Uh, all of that fits in with maintaining these, these international relations, but you know, it, it's to, yet to be seen uh, whether, you know, A, we have the resources in the future to do that, um, if that really leads ultimately to, to military intervention. Uh, but you know, how can we be an international convener? How can we 
provide a, a link in the chain of democracies if we're at odds with all the major democracies because we're being so awkward. Um, I mean, this is maybe just a short term uh, political thing and things will calm down uh, and sense will be restored and we can we can get back to, uh, as I say, more conciliatory uh, relationships with uh, those closest to Because there does seem to be a bit of an irony to me that we talk about global Britain uh, wanting to make all these new friendships and, and ally, allies around the world whilst cutting ourselves off from our oldest and closest allies, which to me seems counterproductive. But as I say, that maybe reflects my yeah. own position on these things. <laughs> Well, one thing is certainly clear. Whatever happens in the future is that the you know the idea of colonization and imperialism is is now dead and gone. And um, you were you were speaking there about how everything changed after the Second World War, but the movement for self determination, certainly of Britain's colonies, was you know it was well underway by by the twenties. That some of it had roots in the nineteenth century as well. So there were kind of there are deep origins to that history. Uh, absolutely, I think the the change was maybe. Uh, well, probably several changes, to be honest. Uh, one was that Britain simply couldn't afford to hold back the tide any longer, that the Second World War was the, the sort of um, straw that broke the camels back financially as, as far as the, the UK was concerned. So we simply didn't have the resources to, to keep a lid on, say, Indian nationalism uh, or, or whatever. Uh, and I do think there was a, a change in, in terms of what people thought, you know, politically, what was right and wrong, what was... Uh, acceptable uh, at this end of the the imperial scale uh, that it was just no longer uh, tenable uh, anymore politically and, and ethically um, even though some may uh, dispute that uh, and may still consider it to be yeah uh, have been acceptable but plus we, we needed to have uh, we needed to be on side with the Americans and the Americans made it very clear that they didn't rate uh, imperialism anymore uh, so we needed the Americans arguably more than we needed the empire by then uh, and that was maybe part of that process as well I think. Mm, fascinating stuff well um, I'll tell you what I'm not going to ask you what you think the future holds but I think I'm going to come back to you <laughs> and then we'll have another chat again in a few months time to see where we all stand. Jane thank you so much for talking to me today. No, that's been a pleasure Sam thank you. Thank you all very much for listening. If you are enjoying these podcasts, please tell your friends. Please leave us a review on iTunes. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram and tell us how much you're enjoying it and what you're enjoying in particular. And we will like and share your post. Best of all, however, do please join the Society for Nautical Research. It doesn't cost very much, but it supports this podcast. It helps the Society with its mission to publish the world's most important maritime history in the quarterly Mariner's Mirror Journal, and it helps preserve our maritime past. Best of all, I reckon, however, is that you can apply for a ticket to come to our annual dinner on HMS Victory, and that is something that you will never, ever forget. You can join at snr.org.uk.